0: Welcome to Lead Today with me, Kalina. Let's talk leadership. Okay, welcome back to the show. We are embarking upon another little bit of a series here, mostly because. I found a book that related so much to what I've been hearing about in the public discourse today, and the book was written in 1958, and I found it very interesting that a lot of the ideas within this book relate to how people are talking about our current situation with the world and the challenges that we're facing So I thought it would make sense to dive in because I have found this fascinating and the people I've spoken with think it's interesting. So let's see what you think and how it goes. So the book is The Undiscovered Self, The Dilemma of the Individual in Modern Society. And it's by Carl Jung. So if you're watching, you can see it. It's got a nice little cover. And I've realized that, well, I sort of like doing this, which is I didn't necessarily love doing book reports or anything in school. Um, but somehow the books I'm reading really come to life for me, whether it's the Bible, the book of Proverbs series that I already did, um, or my own book, of course, which I was very intimately, um, well in touch with because I wrote it. Uh, and, and so this one kind of found me while visiting my mom and she's got an amazing book collection where, well, it feels like a library. You really go down into by her office and there's just piles and piles of books. So every time I'm here, I feel like I can find something to dive into. And I did. So this one is interesting. Today, I'd love to get into what Jung calls the plight of the individual in modern society. So we're really in this episode outlining, okay, what's the problem? What's the challenge? What are the challenges for the individual in the society that we've built for ourselves and what even is the individual in society, what is society. So um, I took some notes and I'll read a couple parts that I found to be really interesting. I think sometimes people won't get into these types of texts because they're not always easy to read, but there's so much wisdom in them. And what I find is sometimes I'm reading the same sentence over and over a few times just to kind of really understand the sentiment behind it. Because somehow, also if I read it out loud as well, the words come to life in a way, way more so than I think they would if I just read them. So sometimes I have to say them in my head and even read them out loud to really kind of understand, okay, here's what this means. At least in terms of what I am able to deduce and interpret from what's being said. So, I mean, not to say that I'm a young expert or that I know how to interpret this. Uh, I will do my very best to walk my way through this first chapter to define. Okay, what really is? Is there even a dilemma at all? What is the problem, and how is it making itself manifest in the world today, or is it? And we can, of course, argue both sides of any coin. So let's decide what we think. Um. So I think the the first kind of question. That he poses straight out the gate is, okay, we all sort of wonder about what will the future bring, especially when looking at the future. We start anticipating if there's any sort of distress in the present moment and we're uncertain about what's happening today. We sort of look to the future and think, oh, is it is it going to be, well, even worse? What's it going to be like? Are we going to be okay? We kind of, instead of being in the present moment and fixing present moment problems, we almost take those problems and extrapolate them out or Don't even look at the present day problems at all, but go to the future and think what's going to happen down the road. We like to we like to be fortune tellers, don't we? We all have that tendency. Um, And so we really in that anticipation look toward either apocalyptic outcomes, so really, really bad uh, potential outcomes where the world essentially crashes and burns or a utopia where everything is sort of great and society has become this picturesque perfect place um and so we look and we try to create a utopia or avoid the apocalypse and we kind of start seeing things sort of like how we see the past with rose-colored glasses i think we kind of either get into catastrophic thinking in the future of all everything could go horribly wrong or okay this is this is what the future should be and we get into the jetsons I'm dating myself, but, you know, into those future cartoons or movies and kind of ideas of what the future should be like um, in a utopian society. And so um, what that's a problem, well, because of one thing that I stated that I foresee, which is that we can't actually properly predict the future. And so we can try, but anyone that tells you they can, can only do so within a certain margin of error or a certain level of accuracy because there's no 100% certainty of what's going to happen. No one has those answers in any situation or any problem that we might potentially face, or is it even a problem? So if you think about things that are on the news, things that are being shared as problems, well, first of all, is it a problem? We don't know if it's going to be a problem in the future. We can extrapolate, we can sit there and say, okay, based on what we've seen in the past, or based on what we're seeing right now, we anticipate it will be a problem. And maybe rightfully so. But we can't actually with 100% certainty, say what will happen down the road. So I think that's the first thing human nature is to say what's going to happen next month, next year, that's a problem in the way that we think, because we start looking to the future. And trying to create an answer in a time that we haven't experienced yet and where we can't know for sure. So that's the first thing. Um, then the next kind of piece that comes up here, which is interesting, um, is... Let's see if I can read this. So... The mass crushes out the insight and reflection that are still possible with the individual, and this necessarily leads to doctrinaire and authoritarian tyranny, if ever the constitutional state should succumb to a fit of weakness. So I've got to backtrack a little bit (laughs) because, well, what are we even talking about here with that? I think the idea in this book, and you can get it from the title, is we're looking at, okay, How does the individual fit into society, right? The dilemma of the individual in modern society. So it's the individual pitted against society. And what's interesting about this, in my opinion, is that, and I'll, oh, well, I drew this out. I don't know if I can show it to you on the screen, but essentially the idea is that, well, the state is made up of individuals, right? If you think about it. but a whole mass of individuals if you think about like um well a pyramid let's say in cheerleading like a pyramid and you've got people and they've all built up to this pyramid if you take one person out you're probably going to be okay because the pyramid can still sustain itself maybe not depends on how big the pyramid and which one is the structural piece but the idea being that the mass crushes out the insight insight or reflection That's possible within the individual. Because you start getting something along the lines of groupthink, right? Or a group perspective. And really the people at the top are the ones that are able to direct, let's say, the head of the big group. But the people in the group really are stacked up one on top of each other, moving this society or state organism forward toward its goals. And, well... Jung argues that there's this sort of tipping point, right, where rational arguments to justify different ways of thinking only work up into a certain point of emotionality, which makes sense, right? So let's say you get to a certain point where if people are hysterical, super afraid, or really, really enchanted with a fantasy, so either they really desire something or they're very, very terrified of something. Again, remember, we're thinking about apocalypse or utopia. So if it's an apocalypse, well then fear is going to bring people to a tipping point at the top where well, rational arguments don't work anymore, and really you're in a fantasy of some sort. If you go past the point of being able to reason with someone where they're just emotional, you know, think about they kind of reach this point where they're so involved, so so scared that you can't you can't reason anymore. And so the idea is on a mass level, we kind of reach a critical mass as a society where so much fear of the apocalypse can be reached that when we hit the tipping point, there really is no more rational argument. It's about, fantasies and slogans and he what he calls a psychic epidemic and he talks about the psyche as being something that's under the this unconscious mind and the idea is that your ego or knowing yourself which we get to d- down the road so I don't want to get ahead of myself but self-knowledge, Is really often perceived as just your ego, what you know about your conscious self. And his argument is that, well, actually, you're being driven by so much that you're not even aware of in your day to day, so many things. And the fear that I'm talking about of this apocalypse isn't something that maybe you're walking around as you're going to work or brushing your teeth or doing your hair or talking to your friend on the phone. It may or may not be something that's consciously present on your mind. You might not be talking about it. Oh, You know, the world, we might have an apocalypse or the world might end because of such and such issue, right? You might not be talking about it, but the fact is the undertone of the society, there's this kind of critical mass and swelling of either fear or desire toward either apocalypse or utopia that it's swelling to this point where people are no longer reasonable or to be reasoned with because they become emotional and therefore irrational. And so what he says about this, is well many things but what happens next um is that he actually goes into talking about a small percentage of people that are insane or ruled by wish fantasies and so these wish fantasies again are more maybe on the utopian side right where you really really think the future could be this certain way that's really fantastic and it could be except you're not there yet. And so but you create these fantasies of what it could be. And you might reach a tipping point where no longer is it a rational fantasy, but you've gone into a bit of a, well, he calls it insanity. But you know, maybe it's not rational. And it's not based on reality or what could be possible in this moment. Or even again, we can't predict the future, we can only build toward it, right? We can look toward what we want, and then do things in the present moment to take us toward what we want. But But we can't actually know for sure what will happen at that future date. So the idea is that when you have these kind of, and he calls it chimerical ideas, and I might be saying that wrong, but that word chimerical, chimerical means hoped for, but impossible to achieve. So when you have these ideas that are hoped for, but impossible to achieve, mixed with resentment of, oh, I can't get this utopian society that I want well then those people that are sort of well there's a lot of talk right now right about sociopaths or um narcissists to get into leadership positions um and so when you can't get what that hoped for ideal is that you want you appeal to the collective irrationality, right? We talked about when you get past that tipping point, you're, you're emotional. You're not rational anymore, right? It's not what's logical and reasonable. It's what's emotional. And so when there's this person that's sort of ruled by wish fantasies, right? And we all have wish fantasies and apocalyptic type thinking within us. We all have that. Um, but when you get somebody that's really ruled by wish fantasies that wants to see them come to life, their, ver- their version and view of what the world should or could be in the future, when you have that, um, those people will express the hidden resentments and the hidden motives of normal people. Right, because they have this view of the world of what it could be, and then they're resentful because it's not coming to be or it seems impossible, it is impossible to achieve, um, and then they're resentful, but they're willing because they're ruled by their wish fantasy of this should be the case, that they speak that out incredibly, well, openly and maybe forcefully. And so people, normal people that maybe aren't ruled by wish fantasies, but that have that within them because we all have that wish fantasy of a better world you know, maybe not utopian society, but a better world within us, right? And so those people are, let's say, infected, quote unquote, within their own minds, right? Or their psyches, more importantly, they're infected by that idea of this better world, that this person who has this (laughs) relentless wish fantasy they hope to bring to life and that they is, again, irrational, you know, hoped for, but impossible to achieve and this resentment brewing. And so they feel the need to express that and people's hidden resentments and motives are touched upon by that person's grandiose expression of, well, that society and those hidden resentments and motives. So then they affect people and Jung's argument is that that's because of a lack of self-knowledge, which as I was pointing to earlier, self-knowledge is what we think it is is the conscious ego personality so kind of the you know this is what i think of myself consciously so social factors come in the own contents of your mind come in but the unconscious which by definition right you're not aware you're not conscious it's not in front of you um is sort of left behind or rather it's you can't people think self-knowledge is knowing just the social factors of where you stand in society and then the own contents of your mind but really there's this other layer that he's saying is is fundamental to self-knowledge that people are missing, which is the undercurrent of of this societal level, getting to a tipping point, moving into a rationality, going into the wish fantasies, right, and not being in a place of reason or rationality, but being run by slogans and fantasies, these bigger picture ideas by those who have the big wish fantasies and have the resentment and these big ideas that they're willing to sort of put out there that are unrealistic, unrealistic ideas or and realist, So that's difficult, right? Because, okay, who decides what's realistic? But I think it's sort of impossible ideas, almost like that couldn't work, but it appeals to our hidden motives and resentments. Okay, so now we have this problem that humans want to see into the future, right? We want to know what it's going to be like, and we want to know if it's going to be really great or if were the world and society is going to crash and burn. And so we're trying to create different models and understandings to well predict the future right and you see this with all sorts of professions where they'll try to predict sales or um the type of change that will happen in the industry the technological advances what will happen with the inputs that they put into their company with the earth what how does it change the climate i mean we're always looking for what is what we're doing going to do to into the future and i'm not saying that that's a bad thing right necessarily we We do want to think about what we do today and how it's going to impact the future, but it's a problem when you build this utopia or this apocalyptic narrative that's driven by deep desire or deep fear, and you get people out of a rational mind and into pure emotionality because then they're very easy to, well, sway. Because right when someone's emotional, like imagine you're emotional about probably a number of things, right? Like if you care about somebody or if something really great happens or something really not good happens in your life, you're sort of driven by emotion. Okay. That was very disappointing. I didn't get the job. So now I'm going to uh, go out drinking or eat that piece of cake or this person cheated on me. I'm going to dump them. It's a very highly emotional event. And so you kind of blast out in one direction or another either anger or you try to get them back right whatever you try to get the next job like you you either go toward desire or you become fearful and sad um, and, and your emotions run the show for you and that's a human tendency and so the idea is well he's saying that because of that individual tendency to predict the future and because of this emotional tipping point we're actually going to the place of slogans and fantasies and emotionality and not able to rationalize after well after the emotionality of the of the masses crushes the individual ability to reason because there's this undercurrent that's happening and so we have this psychic epidemic as he calls it so okay the psyche behaves like the body. And so when we say, okay, psyche, what are we even talking about? where like, okay, the conscious mind is social factors. so again, your place in society, you can see that. you can see if you're a desirable mate, right? You can see if you're doing well in your career or not objectively speaking, what salary you're making, Do you have friends? like there are, there are all these social kind of touch points that let you know where you are, where your place is in society. Great. Your psyche or the unconscious mind, you're not super aware of and and he relates it Jung relates it to your body so our body is doing all these functions even right now my body is doing all these functions to allow me to breathe and speak and my heart is also pumping and there are all these things that my body is doing that I'm not consciously aware of I'm not thinking about breathing I'm just doing it and so similarly your psyche behaves like your body and that it's regulating you it's making sure you're safe right but I'm not, you're not really attending to it while you're going through your day. And the idea is that we know very little about the, the inner automatic workings of our psyche because, well, we're not paying attention to it. We continue to study it. There's so much that's unknown, right? You think of the image of the iceberg. There's so much that's underneath the conscious surface. It's just how we're studying the body in science, we're studying the psyche um, in, psychio- in psychology, I think. Um, and so- So we have all these tendencies that aren't true, I guess, and he calls them illusory assumptions. So they're qualities or tendencies that aren't true. And the unconscious is very open to influence, and he calls them psychic infections. But so I guess he says infections mainly because you can't see them, right? Similar to how you can't see if you get, you know, a cold, You can't necessarily see it, but it definitely infiltrates your body. And so similar, this is something you can't see because it's unconscious. It's below the surface. You're not thinking about it. It's automatically working for you. And there are ideas that can come in and change the way you're thinking without you really consciously thinking about it. And so the average person is ineffective because no one or very few oh, this is the next point. This one was a really good one from this chapter. Um, And then we're going to try to get going because I could keep going for days. Oh man, we have lots of notes. (laughs) Okay. um, I'll try to get through this really quickly. So his next step is, okay, so look, the unconscious is really open to influence and the people that have those, I really need to learn that word, chimerical, chimerical, people that have the ideas that, they hope for but are impossible to achieve right those kind of small percentage of people that are quote-unquote insane or ruled by wish fantasies those people are able to infiltrate the subconscious the unconscious mind and we're going to figure out how they do that or what's going on but the idea is that they can and so they influence the unconscious and so people don't even realize it's happening um and so okay then we kind of move to this other point here where he talks about the average when we calculate averages we do this in society all the time the average weight the average salary um the average lifespan and he says okay but calculating an average in many cases is ineffective because no one or very few people are average um And so he has this example with stones and he says, okay, you have this number of stones and the average is, let's say 145. I don't know what the example, 145 grams is the average of these 10 stones. And he goes, but if you pick up, if you were to pick up one of those stones, the likelihood that they're actually exactly the average weight of all the stones is very low. The likelihood that that one stone is 145 grams is very low. And so that's problematic to rely on averages, When we think about the individual, because no individual is actually spot on the average, they can be around the average, but no or very few individuals are spot on exactly average and so normal right if we think of normal what's that. Well, what is that because there's really this huge kind of leeway that we have to have around the average, the point of average, because nobody is precisely 145 grams. They might be 144 or 150 or 120. That's how we get to that number 145 right in the middle. But so what happens is if we just think about the average person or the average weight or the average salary is that we cut away the majority of people that are actually not on that average number. And that can be problematic because we alienate all of the people on both ends of the average, so the people that, or the stones that weigh 100 grams and the stones that weigh 200 grams, those don't count. But those are just as important, if you if you could argue, as that stone that's around 145, if there even is one, that's exactly 145. And so, well, that's sort of an illusory assumption that I was talking about before is this idea of average, because there is no average salary You can hover around it, but the likelihood that you're just on it is very low because there's this range. And we know that with salaries, right? There's a salary band, but every single quality of every single person, the masculinity and femininity of the qualities, the way people respond, the personality traits, it's all on a spectrum, which I think we're sort of coming to understand, right? That people are not just introverted or just extroverted. They sort of have tendencies and different behaviors based on the context of the situation. So Okay, we we now agree that, well, average can be a bit misleading because, again, we discount the person that's 100 grams or the stone that's 100 grams and the stone that's 200 when we just think about 145 as the average. Um, Okay, so... Then there's this next argument of, okay, well, knowledge and science, while not losing sight of the individual, is what the psychologist needs to keep in mind. So a psychologist is meant to be relying on science, right? They're they're a doctor. Um, And the psychologist has the duty to really make sure that they're keeping humans or the individual patient that they have in mind as an individual and not just as this statistic in their data set and so science defines or looks at often humans as anonymous units to pile up these mass formations like let's say a company right or that pyramid that we talked about you're just one piece of the pyramid so you individually don't matter you're kind of this part of the whole right and we can think about that as collectivist versus individualist countries or societies so Traditionally speaking, the Western world is considered to be individualist because we value the individual versus collectivism where in countries like many Asian countries where the whole is more important than the individual parts. And so here we're getting into the idea that, okay, science and knowledge seeking often looks at human uh, humans as anonymous units, but really the psychologist or psychiatrist needs to look at people not as or to balance the idea of a a human as a part of the whole society versus the individual for what problem and where they are at in their life right now what they're struggling with and where they are individually Um, and so the individual is the corner of reality concrete man as opposed to an unreal ideal And so the idea is is that society is an unreal ideal. We talk about it in the form of averages or bigger picture ideas. They're more abstract. It's not really real, right? Because you can't have a society without individuals, but you can have an individual without a society. And so, I mean, this gets, (laughs) this might be a bit much or be getting into a bit much, but the idea is that the individual is the only form of reality that actually exists because we can define it we can't exactly define a mass right it's sort of an idea but we don't know every single part but we can that the level of analysis we should be looking at is actually at the level of the individual because of the idea that a mass of let's say people it's deceptive because we would look at it as an average and that average is deceptive because like we talked about, if we say this society thinks this 145, but really, well, but some think a hundred and some think 200. So to tell a society that we all think that the stones weigh 145 grams or on average, people say that stones weigh 145 grams is very misleading. So what the mass thinks on average is misleading because There are people that think 100 and people that think 200, and those two things are very different from 145 grams, right, if we're sticking with the stone example. So the idea is that science distorts reality to an average, right? And we we see this because science is looking for, okay, what's the average? What is it that... (laughs) Everything converges to in the middle, that point, we're looking for the average salary, the average weight, the average level of whatever, everything, production, cost. um, And so science distorts reality to this average, which is ineffective because very few individual components within a set of numbers or set of people will be that average. And so that's why it's misleading. I hope that makes sense. I think the stone image that he makes is quite clear, Um, right? Because if you think of even 10 people, 10 people, if if their average weight is 150 pounds, you could have somebody that's 100 pounds and somebody that's 200 pounds. But if you were to just look at, let's say you have three people, one person is 100, one person is 200, and one person is 145. I mean, that would draw the average a little bit, but okay, let's just say two people, And one person's 100 and one person is 200. The average between them will be 150, okay? But how could you possibly say that the person that's 100 pounds is the same as the person is 200? Or how can you analyze the two of them, right? They're going to have such different characteristics, a person that's 100 pounds and a person that's 200. So to say the average weight in our society is 150, but you've got people that are 200 pounds and people that are 100 pounds and everywhere in between, it's very difficult that that doesn't actually get you anywhere when it comes to understanding what the makeup of the population really is, if that makes sense. So Science does provide us with organization. And, you know, I don't think he's arguing against science. He's talking about when do we use which way of thinking and which way of thinking is important given which situation that we're in. Like, you know, and science, when we're talking about humans can be problematic when we just look at averages and not as individuals as the individual person. Just a number, just an anonymous number in a data set is problematic when we're talking about human beings, because we have such individual characteristics, Um, which is why he is saying that we should analyze at the level of the individual, not at the level of the whole, this kind of mass. Um, Because science does provide us with organization, um, with the state as the highest political reality, right? Let's say if we're thinking about an organization of people within the context of the state, Or in politics, the state is the highest level of that organization, right? And by state, like he can mean nation state, not necessarily like one of the United States, let's say. So his challenge with this is that the scientific rationalism robs us of individual dignity and moral responsibility of the individual, which is the only real life, right? Again, he's saying that the individual is the only reality that we can actually have. An abstract state is just made up of a bunch of individuals and thus is not in and of itself really anything. (laughs) I mean, it represents things, but a state is just a group of individuals. And so we need to go down to the most granular form of analysis of the makeup of that object, which is the individual. Society is made up of a bunch of individuals. So, we should, the, the argument is, we should be looking at people as individuals, not as a mass of individuals. Because when we're working on averages, we rob people of individual dignity, and individual dignity comes from moral responsibility of the individual. So, you have responsibility. You need to, well, use your own judgment to make the best decision at hand. So, if You're just a part of a whole and an anonymous number. You don't need to use your judgment. Why would you? I mean, (laughs) if you're just a part of the whole and your decisions don't actually matter at the individual level, then you're going to move up to the next level, which is, well, the next order of the function, which would be, okay, the, the state. The state makes the policy then because you as an individual are anonymous or just one dot in the whole data set. And so now... We have to look at the policy of the state and they deal with public welfare or raising the standard of living, right? And then, so because they're dealing with public welfare and you don't have to make those decisions anymore, well, then the state defines housing, food, education, rules, entertainment, they handle, well, essentially all of your decision-making because you're just a part of the whole. So the state organism needs to take care of you. Because rational scientific rationalism states that, well, the state is going to give you the organization and the, the parameters for what makes a good life, what constitutes that utopia, will be told to you. And that is in line with collectivist societies. Again, the whole governs the individual, not the individual governing the whole. And that's where those two differences in ways of thinking really come from. Okay, so we're almost there, right? So then from when when the rulers are, well, the state telling and defining what needs to happen, right? The food, the housing, the education, the rules, the entertainment, and the individual doesn't need to have their own morals or judgment, the, that theoretical society moves into a state of slavery and rebellion. So people in the society are slaves to the rules of the state that are enforcing them. And who's enforcing them? Well, the people that work within the state. But those people also don't have any judgment or sense of judgment. They just follow the rules. Because everybody's following the rules of this hypothetical or, well, the the, the state that we've defined, right? Um, And so the people that work within it are also just units within the state. So the individuals in the society are just units anonymous units and then the people within the state are also anonymous units moving toward the rules outlined by the state which leads to an enslaved people and rebellion of those slave or slaves because well they have no moral responsibility and thus individual dignity and so then there's this outcry and uprising Um, and he references louis the 14th with the statement of L'état c'est moi, which is the state is me because what happens is There becomes a rivalry for power and a sense of distrust among the people once you get into these later stages. Um, And really the only people that have individualized decision-making are the people at the top. The people at the top, however, are already kind of captured by the state ideal or what the state stands for. And so even at the highest levels, they're sort of captured by this utopian vision or apocalyptic vision that we've talked about that's gone into gone past the point of rationalism and into emotionality so even the person at the very top head of the state um has sort of become to identify has started to identify with the idea that the state is me i am the state so how could you be an individual if you feel you are the state i mean then then you are beholden to the ideals of this utopian wish fantasy that you've created if you are at the top of it you're beholden to those ideals so you're not even really you don't even have really your own judgment morals or ability to kind of make changes because you don't have any responsibility anymore the state sort of becomes this abstract idea becomes the guiding light at that point which we've identified is sort of unattainable and so again because it's unattainable it's irrational because there's no way to kind of really get to that point in in full-fledged vision um and so you're operating from wish fantasies, slogans, and emotions. Um, is the argument here? And so individual judgment grows increasingly uncertain, right? Um, well, because you don't, you don't need to make any decisions for yourself at that point. If you are guided at the very most granular levels by the state, then you don't have to make any choices because school, housing, food where you go, what you do, how you do it, what you watch, the entertainment, it's all governed by the state. Well, then you don't have to make any choices. And so your own individual judgment becomes uncertain. You feel that you're not confident to make any decisions. You feel on edge or anxious. You're not really sure. And so then you're in this collectivized society, which is an idea again, right? Kind of this average society is this collection of averages, but no one person is that thing. No one person is exactly that average of society or a good citizen. Everyone will have their little nuances around the average because, well, there are differences. We all we're, no one is right on the average or which average because if you're if you hit the mark on let's say average weight you might not be average height or average eye color or average hair color or average bone structure or tone of voice or like so there's so many different characteristics that you will never meet the average of what a society is meant to be there will always be nuances and so um well as we've as we've seen collectivist if it goes into communism and a tribe like that there's autocratic rule of a chief that so they really decide everything that then falls down and all the people within that structure follow the chief but as we've already established in the louis XIV l'état c'est Moi idea you know the state is me that person is already sort of consumed by this wish fantasy that is impossible to ever achieve and so it will never be actualized realized in real life it will never become to it will never manifest itself in reality or come to be so They sort of strive to this ideal that can never come to be at the price of individual dignity and individual responsibility of, well, people's own morals and judgment to guide them to make the right decision. They don't need to do that anymore because they've been told what to do, which is problematic for the individual. And in theory, problematic for the society because the society keeps chugging toward an unattainable wish fantasy. And so we have to be very careful about which wish fantasy we're striving toward. If that's what we're going to do, strive toward utopia, or this apocalypse, right? Away from fear, toward utopia. We have to be very careful about those extremes. So his next idea, which we'll get into in the next episode, because I think we've spent enough time here, <laughs> is um, religion as a counterbalance to mass-mindedness. And so we'll kind of delve into, okay, well, how how is religion? Supposed to be a counterweight or a counterbalance to this mass mindedness. Mass mindedness being, right? Everybody is sort of going toward the ideals of a state or of, let's say, a particular organization without being in touch with their individual self, without self knowledge. And by self knowledge, again, we define that as the unconscious. So not the ego, what your ego tells you, not what society tells you, but really the unconscious that is driving you, similar to how your body fuels you. So Next episode, religion as the counterbalance to mass-mindedness. We'll see how does religion factor into this whole equation that we've just looked at. Um, And I really hope that you're you're still with me here. It's certainly a whole host of ideas and and different ways of thinking, and really fascinating to see what this this man was thinking about um, in 1958 and earlier, and how we could potentially relate these ideas to the times today. And still, there are ideas of again. Apocalypse, potential apocalypse and the ideas of a utopian ideal society. So I think we still have those two because we are very driven by fear and desire. And so this is looking at how when we get driven by either one of those things, and maybe to the point of irrationality or emotionality, we can really tip over the edge and head into well, some dangerous territory. So again, I hope you enjoyed this. Look forward to seeing you next time when we talk about religion as the counterbalance to mass mindedness and how that can factor into the equation uh, and would love to hear your thoughts. So please do review or message me, reply to the poll. um, If you're listening on Spotify, where you can share what you think of this episode, it means so much to me to hear what you think. Um, And as usual, if you found it useful, share it you know, share it with a friend, see what they have to say, um, or support the show. There are links to do that as well. So any way that you can interact with me on here means the world, because I do this show so that we can be in discussion and dialogue about this. I'm already reading the book, but I want to hear what you think. That's why I'm putting it out there to the world. So please do engage with me in one way or another to let me know what you think, what this what this does to you, if you agree, disagree, and, and how so. Um, I'd love to really hear what you think. So Thanks again for listening and see you next time.